Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your great name we give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. And Father, as a deer pants for flowing streams of water, so our souls pant for you. For you are great, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Father, now I just ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would use your word to move in each one of our hearts, to change us, to conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who came, who lived, who died, who was raised, that we could have eternal life. Oh God, great are you, Lord. Father, I pray if there are those here today that have wandered from you, that today you would draw them back to you. And for those maybe that have never received you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would turn from their sin, turn from themselves, and turn to you as their only hope for eternal life. Oh, great are you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And welcome. Children, have a great class. Be nice to your teachers, especially those in Cole's class. Students will have a great time over at Mercury Mines. Well, today we are, as Joey mentioned, we're going to be baptizing. We had eight baptisms in the first service. We have seven scheduled for this service. That's a praise God for sure. And uh, I just want to mention that um, if during the testimonies or if during the, even the service, you feel led by the Spirit to be baptized because you've never been baptized since receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. Johannes will be standing over here. We'd encourage you to come over, talk to him. We want to make sure you have a a very clear testimony of your salvation. The fact that you've turned from your sin and self and you turn to Christ as your only hope for eternal salvation, your only hope for eternal salvation. And uh, if that's the case, then we want to be able to baptize you. Um, So yeah, God's moving and we're thankful for that. Well, the message today is on forgiveness, something we all love when we receive it, not when we have to give it. In fact, I wrote this statement down at the beginning of this message. Forgiveness is one of the most beautiful gifts you will ever receive. And at the same time, one of the most difficult acts we are commanded to do. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is one of the most beautiful gifts we could ever receive. Yet at the very same time, one of the most difficult acts that we're commanded to do. So what is forgiveness? Well, I got a definition from the Dictionary of Bible Themes, and it says this. It's the freeing of a person from guilt and its consequences including punishment, usually as an act of favor or grace, compassion and love, with the aim of restoring a broken personal relationship. Forgiveness can involve both the remission of punishment and the cancellation of debts. So it's the freeing of guilt from our sin. It's no longer being under the consequences of that sin and the punishment of it even though there may still be some consequences. It's a grace gift. Listen, we all love the idea of being forgiven. How many of you actually appreciate the fact that God forgave you of your sins? Yeah, 
The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is an amazing thing. It's an act of grace. We don't deserve it. That's why it's grace. It would be like you have 150,000 mortgage on your home and a lender calls your lender calls you up out of the blue and says, "You know, Richard, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm going to forgive that debt." Like it had nothing to do with you. It had everything to do with me. It was my decision that I'm going to forgive you of that debt. I mean, like, that would be amazing, right? How many of you would love to have your mortgage or your rent forgiven? Like most of us. But then let's say a week later, that same lender calls up Richard and says, you know, Richard, $150,000, you've been forgiven now. There's somebody that I know that you owe $1,500 to you, to, and that they owe $1,500 to you. And I... I I'm asking you to forgive that debt. And Richard goes, no, he owes me that money. He's going to pay it. And I'm going to make sure of it. And that seems like kind of crazy, isn't it? But isn't that what we do when we don't forgive somebody? When Christ has forgiven us a debt that we could never repay. And yet we are unwilling to forgive someone else. That's why the Bible says, as Christ has forgiven you, so you also must do. When we forgive, we are more like Jesus than probably at any other time in our life. In fact, think about this. When Jesus was, was hanging on the cross, in fact, if you ever saw the, the passion of the Christ, I mean, it's just that scene probably is the one that rocked me the most. I mean, like, and he's looking down at those that had illegally arrested and tried him that had mercilessly beaten him, scourged him, and then nailed him to the cross. And he looks down at those men and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What an amazing picture of forgiveness, of God's grace. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says this. This is in this section where there's put-ons and put-offs. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones. You were chosen. God chose you. You're holy and beloved. Put on uh, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint with another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. As Christ has forgiven you, so you also must do. And that becomes the big idea of this message. And I just took it right from that verse. I think I'm okay with this. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So let me ask you a question. Are you holding on to unforgiveness? Is there someone that you're saying, they're going to pay their $1,500? They're going to feel it. And the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 34, 35, that when we're unwilling to forgive, we are the ones that are put in spiritual prison. Like we think they're getting theirs, but they're probably not even thinking about it. We're the ones that are having to deal with it. Now, in 2 Corinthians, I mentioned uh, last couple of weeks, just to give you a little context, Paul had planted this church around 
58 or 59 AD on his second missionary journey. He had spent 18 months there. He had, he had, he had led people to Christ. He had discipled. He had developed leaders. Um, I mean, and, and Corinth is not a great area to do that. It was considered the Las Vegas of the ancient world. I, I think that's where the, the phrase, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. I think Las Vegas has kind of hijacked that. But, but I mean, it was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was, it was, it was like vice central. And, and, and so what happened is when Paul left to go on additional missionary journeys, then there, were, there, were, there was at least a leader who then gathered other people and he started questioning Paul's authority, his apostleship. They, he started undermining uh, uh, his, 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 his um, credibility. In fact, because Paul didn't return when he said he would, because his travel plans had changed, they said, well, you can't trust Paul. And because you can't trust Paul, you can't trust his message. You can't trust the gospel. And as a result... There was this division that took place in the church. And so he wrote a severe letter to the church and he says, you need to put this man under spiritual, you need to put him on, under church discipline because he's caused great harm to the church. Well, ultimately, the discipline had its effect when they put him under discipline. The man repented, but now they needed to forgive him. They hadn't forgiven him. It's like, we're just going to, like, we're just going to make this guy, we're just going to grind him into the ground almost. And that's where we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 and following. Let me read this. Look down at your Bibles, if you would. He says, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs." And so out of this passage, I want to give you three reasons to forgive, but I'm going to give you four because one of them is from something we've already looked at. So four reasons why we should forgive. Here's the first one. We forgive because we're commanded to. We forgive because we're commanded to. As Colossians 3.13, as Christ has forgiven you, so you also must do. It's not an option. In fact, we really could close up the Bible and just be done with the message. But I'm not going to do that. We're commanded to forgive. We really don't need any other reasons. And because the scripture is so clear about it, let's just move to the second reason. First of all, we, we forgive because we are commanded to. But secondly, we forgive for the sake of the offender. We forgive for the sake of the offender Look, look again at verse five. It says, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to, for, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the, my, by the majority is enough. Now, Paul doesn't name the man, but the church knew. He doesn't name who this guy is, but they knew. Those in Corinth, they, they understood it. Now, some commentators will say that, well, 
It's the guy from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the one that had sexual immorality with his father's wife. But the context here does not support that at all. It's clearly the man that had come in and created division in the church. It was a man whose sin was so great it caused deep pain to Paul and to many in the church. And that's why he wrote this severe letter. See, they didn't understand the deep, they didn't understand the connection between undermining Paul and his message and what it would do to the church. In fact, they didn't even have a canon of scripture at the time. So this was really critical. See, it would be like me, like when I went to Romania, Pam and I went to Romania in November. And it's like, all of a sudden, there's some people in the church, one in particular, who started creating division by unjust attacks on me, saying, I don't really care for the people of this church. This is just a place for me to gain a platform and add 50 people to my Instagram. It's not a big deal, right? And, I, and like, if you know me, you know I don't care about that. Like, like, they would attack my legitimacy as the pastor or say that the message I'm preaching can't be trusted. And no one says a word. That would be divisive, wouldn't it? But I'm so thankful that we have elders and we have, we have deacons and we have, we, have, we have leaders and we have friends in this church. We'll say, wait a minute, we know him. We, we know that that's not the case. They would stand up. But see, that didn't happen to Paul. Everybody just kind of sat there with their arms folded and said, well, I guess that's what's going on. It became very divisive. So Paul wrote in a severe letter, put him under church discipline. Now, there's a lot of people in this world that don't like the idea of discipline. They don't like the idea of church discipline. And as I'm going to show you in a couple of minutes, discipline is one of the most loving things that we can do. And the Bible is very clear about what discipline looks like and what it shouldn't look like. And so I want to put up Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And these are Jesus's words. And he shows us very clearly what church discipline is to be like. Now, he says, if your brother sins against you, go to him. And tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, it, it would be like if Danny sinned against me. And let's say, okay, I'm going to pray about it. If it doesn't roll off my back, and sometimes we just have to let things roll off our back. I mean, if, if every time somebody sins against you, like, can you imagine a marriage? Every time your spouse sinned against you, you're just going to like, you got to go take them through church discipline. Like, that would be horrible. I mean, we've been married 34 years and like, we would, we, we'd been done in two for sure. But, 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 well, not because we know we're not, divorce is not an option when you're Christian. But the fact is, if I go to, if I finally, I say, okay. It's bothering me. I go to Danny and, and, and if Danny's walking in the spirit and I said, Danny, you know, this is what happened. And, and, I, and he, oh, Bill, you know what? Forgive me. I, I was wrong. Guess what? I've received my brother. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. We've just restored that relationship. That's church discipline. And I, when, when we do like last week, we had like 33 people in our next step. And when we were talking about this in Next Step, I said, our goal, I mean, we don't love the idea of using the word discipline. We use restoration because that's really what it is. Our elders are over doctrine, direction, and discipline. But I always qualify, it's, it's restoration. See, the goal with me is not to beat Danny down. 
but it's to restore that relationship in a loving way. And, and it's important, according to Matthew chapter 7, that I take the log out of my own eye, and I've always got a log in my eye, so I can see clearly to take the speck out of my brother's eye. See, if I go to Danny, he said, well, you, yeah, I did that to you, but you did this and this and this. And so that, that's where we got to be very careful. But let's say that Danny's not walking in the spirit. And so we go to the second step. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that you may that, that the charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, where we're called to have witnesses. So let's say I take a couple other guys with me. And we go to Danny and, 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 and say, Danny, this happened. And he's, well, so what? And, and like, see you guys? Like, he's, he's not walking in the spirit. But if, if, if in time we let Danny understand the weight of this and the Holy Spirit starts to work in him and he says, you know, you're right. Forgive me. That, that, that was wrong of me. I, I, I confess it. I'm going to turn from that. Again, we've restored the brother. That is always the goal. But if he refuses to listen to them, and this is, this is over a period of time because like we're not going to rush this. We want the Holy Spirit to work. Then you tell it to the church, that's where we're going to get some elders involved. And, and that's when we sit down and, and, and I probably say to Danny, okay, Danny, this is the way it's going to go. And like, we love you and we don't want this to happen, but it's important for you. To, we, we can't allow ongoing unrepentant sin to continue in the church. And then if he still doesn't listen, then you treat him, it says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Treat him as an unbeliever because he's not acting like a believer. See, a believer who's walking in the spirit is going, to, is, is going to come under the conviction of the spirit, is going to confess and going to repent, want to get right with you and going to want to get right with God. And so now it's like every time we see Danny, it's like, like Danny, do you know the Lord? And we're going, to, we're going to bring him along. And so that's church discipline. And that's what Paul wrote in his severe letter to the church, knowing the goal is always restoration. Well, the church took Paul's command to heart and they put this man under church discipline, but then they went too far. Now, before I go into that, I said that church discipline or discipline is a very loving thing to do. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of that. And I would encourage you to read this whole section from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 to verse 11. But I just put part of it here and he says, my son, do not regard the, lightly the discipline of the Lord, no, nor be weary when reproved by him. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Like when we are disciplined by the Lord, it's an act of his love and chastises every son whom he receives. It says that we are children of God. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And you drop down to verse 11, it says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. There's a goal in discipline, that you would change. Yet there's a, there's a movement, I hate to say it, there's a movement nationally where there's just like no discipline. There's some cities right now that are feeling the effects of 
of not disciplining people. We can see it on the news. People that are growing up without any discipline. And there's parents that are saying, you know, I love my child too much not to discipline them. I, I love them too much to discipline them. No, you don't love them enough. Because if you loved them enough, you would discipline them. If like little Johnny keeps running out into the street and you say, well, Johnny, that was not a good thing to do. But Johnny keeps doing it and there's no discipline. There's no, con eventually, what's going to happen to Johnny? It's not going to be good. See, discipline is a very loving thing to do. And, and if you disagree with that, then you disagree with God and his word. Look at, look at Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now, I want to just kind of put a little qualifier on here. Is that This is not beating. This is discipline. This is appropriate discipline in a loving way. We had to learn that with our boys. One of our sons certainly needed some discipline. And like today, you know, he's just, he's incredible. A great kid. L look what, look what uh, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Why? Because we're born sinful, but the rod of discipline drives it far from them. They learn the importance of obedience, walking uh, in a, under authority. How about uh, Proverbs 23, 13 and 14? Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Again, appropriate to the bottom. It's, you know, and, and there's a whole process for this. You know, sitting down with them, letting them know that you love them, letting them know that, that, that the only reason you're doing this is because they're being disobedient or they're, they're lying. Now, can they spill glass of milk? That, no. But, but they're just ongoing rebellion. We don't want people in our... We don't want rebellious children. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Now, some people say, like, I just don't believe in that. Well, I've got another verse for you. Proverbs 14, 12, which says, there's a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way to death. See, biblical discipline is an act of love. And you can't have sin running rampant in the church. So he says in verse six, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. Okay, they had exacted the discipline and he says, it's enough. See, the church had actually gone too far. Punishment is a word that's only used this time, only one time in the, in the New Testament. It's a, it's, it's a legal penalty. And he says, it's enough. It's sufficient. The discipline has had its effect. He's confessed of his sin. He's turned and he's repentant. And here's the problem. You're still holding unforgiveness towards this man. He's, he's, he's turned. He's repented. Look at verse 7. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The danger now lay in going too far and not forgiving the man who's repented. The fact is, we are called to forgive. I mean, this poor man, I mean, you can imagine if that were you. Let's say you engage, you didn't, you, I was going to say you fell into sin. There's no falling into sin. You engage it. It's a, it's a, it's a choice. But let's say you sin and you're confronted you're taken through Matthew 18. You're obstinate. But in time, you came under conviction. You, you confessed it. You repented. Yet now they wouldn't, nobody, nobody will forgive you. 
And here's the reality. We're all called to forgive no matter if the person confesses and repents. We are called to forgive because we're not called to hold on to unforgiveness. But, but that would be a horrible thing. So Paul says, turn, forgive him and comfort him. Don't just forgive him, but comfort him. This is, this is a loving thing to do. But yet they didn't, they didn't forgive him because they wanted him to feel the pain. Can you imagine if God did that to us? There's no worse place to be than in an unreconcilable position. You want to be able to go and you want to be able to seek forgiveness and you want them to, to, to forgive you and to free you from that debt. And so when he says comfort him, that, it's the word we talked about last week. It's parakleo. It's the same word used for the, the Holy Spirit. You come alongside, you comfort him. Otherwise, he will be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. See that at the end of verse 7, that word overwhelmed, it means to be swallowed up quickly. Have you ever been at the beach and you're hanging out in the water and it's, water's nice and all of a sudden, I mean, here comes, a, here comes a, a wave that you just weren't expecting and it just overwhelms you. It swallows you up. That's the idea here. You don't want him to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. See, once repentance has occurred, if we don't forgive the person, there's a danger that those who are not restored to the church run the risk of this becoming overwhelmed by this deep sorrow, discouragement, and maybe even worse, moving back into sin. So Paul makes this appeal to the church. And then he, he, he makes a, a, another appeal in verse eight. So he says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is where it really can get difficult sometimes. Again, we're called to forgive, especially when somebody confesses and repents. And see, love is evidence of true discipleship. When we love when we forgive, we are more loving at that time. We're more, we're more like Christ and more loving than probably at any other time because we're showing unconditional love. And the fact is, we know that it's a picture of being a true disciple of Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How did Jesus love us? unconditionally. He forgave us a debt we could never repay. I mean, our sin is pretty wicked in his eyes, but yet he sent Jesus to die on the cross, to be buried, you know, as a substitute for us to be buried and raised again on the third day. He, he's covered our sins. And he says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So as Christ has loved us, as Christ has forgiven us, so we are to love others. So we are to forgive others. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Forgiveness is a picture of love for one another. All right. So we forgive because it's commanded. We forgive for the sake of the offender. Third, we forgive for our sake. We forgive for all our sake. Now, Paul didn't merely beg the Corinthians to forgive the sinner. He saw it as a matter of obedience. 
He saw it as a matter of obedience. Look at verse 9. For this is why I wrote, to, why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom uh, uh, you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Obedience to God's word demands the hard work of church discipline. But it also demands the hard work of forgiveness. And again, I, I just want to say this. There's times if we try to do this in our own strength, our own power, we are going to fail miserably. We, we must be walking in the spirit. We must be praying for God to give us the strength to forgive, the grace to forgive. It's not always easy. And notice what he says in verse 9. He says, for this is why I wrote to you that I might test you. There's going to be times we're going to go through tests. We know in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, that, that, that uh, God said that I, I let you wander in the wilderness to test you, to see what was in your heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 4, when, or excuse me, Exodus 16, verse 4, when, when, when God sent the, uh, uh, the manna, he, he tested them to make sure they wouldn't take more than just what they needed for that day. God will test us. And he says, he says here, I test you to know whether you are obedient in everything. And sometimes we will be tested. And here's the challenge. There are going to be times we don't accept the repentance of a fellow believer who's caused us harm. But we're still called to forgive them. See, the memories of their sin can prompt us to distrust, to have fear and bitterness. But we're still called to confess. Now, here's the question. Are we to be discerning and to use wisdom when somebody says that they repent? I think we are. I think we need to be, we need to be wise. I mean, you could tell your, when your kids are sorry that they got caught or truly are brokenhearted that they did what they did. We see the difference. God sees that with us for sure. Even though we may forgive, it may not mean that the relationship we had before with that person is the same. I think that's really important to understand. Let's say a husband has been abusive with a wife. They may not be able to go back into that relationship. But she still has to forgive. Somebody could have betrayed you in, let's say, a business situation. You're still called to forgive, but it doesn't mean you go back into that relationship with them. In fact, we'll look at this in a couple weeks when we get there. But in chapter 7, it'll be more than a couple weeks, we see the difference between worldly grief and godly grief when it comes to repentance. Look at chapter 7, verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. Paul says, for even though I made you grieve, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though for only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into what? Repenting. This discipline that you went through, 
It grieved you, but into repenting. That's a good thing. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And then he makes a distinction between godly grief that leads to repentance and worldly grief that leads to sorrow and death. Notice what he says in verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that, you, that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And then speaking of the, God, world, the godly grief, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So it's important that we're discerning. It's important that we, 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 we watch. You know, um, repentance, is, it's been said, is a long obedience in the same direction. And that's what we're looking for but we still are called to forgive. So, so as we look at this passage, we've seen in verse five that the man had sinned, Paul, sinned against Paul and, 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 and the reputation of the church. And so after prodding, they put him under church, church discipline, maybe put him out of the church. And then we see in seven uh, and eight that it brought about genuine repentance, genuine sorrow, but they missed the next step. They didn't forgive him. So Paul says, you need to turn and to forgive him. He says, this is why I wrote to you that I might test you and know whether you are obedient and everything. It's like they were obedient to put him under church discipline, but not to forgive him. Forgiven people forgive. Maybe you've heard that before. Forgiven people forgive. My prayer is that we as a church would have such a deep understanding of the gospel and what Christ has done for us that we can't help but want to forgive those that have sinned against us. When we're reminded of the fact, Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. That because of my sin, I deserve eternal death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's why Romans 10 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We'll be saved from eternal damnation because of our sin. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he took all of our sin, past, present, and future. He died in our place. And, and, and 2 Corinthians 5.21 reminds us that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might receive the righteousness of God. So when we turn from our sin and turn to Christ, we no longer are standing there naked before the Lord. We are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. He didn't have to do that. We should be so rocked in our souls by what Christ has done for us. That how could we not follow him? How could we not forgive those he calls us to forgive? When he has forgiven us a debt that we could never pay back, how could we hold on to our righteous thinking 
God, forgive us for that thinking. Forgiven people forgive. And this is axiomatic in, in Paul's teachings. It's axiomatic in Jesus' teachings. We forgive because it's commanded. We forgive for the sake of the sinner. We forgive for our sake. And finally, we forgive for the church's sake. See, when we harbor unforgiveness, we are just playing into Satan's schemes. Satan would love to hold us to hold on to our unforgiveness. If you are holding on to unforgiveness, you now have fallen prey to Satan's schemes. Look at verse 11. So that, let me start in verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Why? So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Listen, Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he might destroy. 1 Peter 5, 8. We must be so careful that we don't fall into his schemes. If you hold on to unforgiveness, you have just broken your relationship with God. Not eternally, but here on earth. How can you say that, Bill? Well, Psalm 66, 18, I think is a really good verse for you to know. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not what? He won't hear. The Lord will not hear. 1 Peter 3, 7 tells husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. That's a message in and of itself. You know, treating them as the weaker vessel, treating them as a piece of fine china, honoring them as co-heirs to life. Lest your prayers be hindered separated from God. It's the same thing. If we hold on to unforgiveness, it just breaks that relationship with God. You can pray all you want, but with unconfessed sin, your, your prayers aren't getting above the ceiling tiles, if that. We don't want to be outwitted by Satan. In prolonging the discipline against this man, he would become discouraged and potentially in time, the church's heart could become hardened against him. See, unforgiveness gives Satan a beachhead from which he can operate in the church and it grieves the Holy Spirit. Look at, look at Ephesians chapter four. I kind of broke this down, but I would encourage you to read chapter four, 20, actually read Chapter four, just read chapter four. <laughs> and give no opportunity for the devil. Right there. Give no opportunity to the devil. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice. Those are some put-offs. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. These are put-ons. Tender-hearted. Here it is. Forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ forgave you. We do not want to give Satan a beachhead. I said at the beginning of this message, this statement, forgiveness is one of the most beautiful acts or one of the most beautiful gifts we'll ever receive and can at the same time be the, one of the most difficult acts we're commanded to do. Many of you probably know the story of Corrie ten Boom. She wrote the book, The Hiding Place. She actually helped hide Jews during World War II. She ultimately found herself in 
concentration camp. And in her book, she recalls that after the war, meeting a guard from the concentration camp where her sister Betsy had died and where she had been subjected to horrific indignities. In her book, she wrote this. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. She'd been sharing her testimony about God's grace. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower door, at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he's washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people at Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile, she went on. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. And while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. And give no opportunity for the devil. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And you can just see in this moment how Croyton Boom, she stopped walking in the flesh. She started walking by the Spirit. She let the Spirit speak to her heart. And she became like Christ. We forgive because it's commanded. We forgive for the sake of the offender. We forgive for our sake. And we forgive for the church's sake. And when we forgive, every time we forgive, we are reminded of God's great forgiveness towards us. And I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. And as they do, in a couple minutes, we're going to engage in baptisms. We're going to celebrate baptisms. And each baptism is a picture of someone that has confessed their sin before God. They've asked God to forgive them. And guess what? God forgave them. 
The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Baptism is just a beautiful picture of being cleansed by Christ. And so the water is just a picture of that. Lord, let us never forget the grace we've received. Father, forgive us for the times we make our Christianity about so much other, so many other things than the life, death, burial, resurrection of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray even right now, maybe there's someone here today that's gotten away from you. Maybe they knew the truth, but they've not lived it out. And maybe today they need to just ask you for forgiveness for wandering away from you and that they wouldn't just ask for forgiveness, but they would turn, they would turn back to you. And Lord, you would receive them. I pray if there's anyone today that's never turned to Jesus as Lord and Savior today, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would confess you as Lord and they would receive you as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray right now that our eyes would be turned towards you and we would understand you are our hope. You are our joy. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.